Otherwise on SAFM. And welcome to Monday's edition of Otherwise on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. My name is Shadow Twala. Hazel Makuzeni is my producer, and our technical producer is Luanda Mafiana. Our number in the studio, 0892-102010, or email otherwise at safm.co.za. It's Heritage Month, and today we've invited Dr. Devi Rajab to shed light on women South Africans of Indian origin. Later on, we're joined by the 2008 Women's Black Ball Pool World Champion, Atra Pancho. Otherwise, on SAFM. Dr. Devi Rajab is an award-winning journalist, psychologist, and author of Women South Africans of Indian Origin. Dr. Devi Rajab, welcome to Otherwise, and thanks for your time. Thank you very much indeed for having me. I'm excited to have this discussion with you. Uh Why was it important to profile South African Indian women? Right. You know, uh, given the impact of over 150 years of their settlement in South Africa, um, I was rather curious to find out how they've actually fared, you know, generally, and then more specifically, what have they contributed to, to, the, to the country, the land of their adoption. Invariably, when I go anywhere overseas, you know, they're, they're wanting to know where you're from, and then you say, you're from South Africa, and how did you get there, and who are you? And so those sort of questions one invariably has to answer. You've been there for, for over 100 years. How are you? How have you panned out? Uh, are you very much like Indians from India, or are you very much like Africans? And so, you know, that's the kind of question one is invariably asked. And so I ask that question theoretically mm-hmm. to see what has happened to Indian women over three generations and, and over 50, 150 years, really. Mm. Can you take us back to what we yes. should understand as the history of how those women, together with their families, first arrived in, in South Africa? Uh, yes, actually, you know, uh, often this question is asked. Britain had colonized India, and of course they had had, colon- had, South- had colonized South Africa, and they were looking for indentured people to come to work on the sugarcane industry. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time, there were lots of people in India who were struggling uh, materially and, uh, you know, financially to make it. Mm-hmm. Some of them were also looking for adventure. My grandfather came as a single uh, 18-year-old, hopped mm-hmm. on, a, on, on one of those uh, uh, boats and went to Mauritius, uh, learned some French, made some money, lost it, came to Natal. <laughs> you know, there, there are lots of interesting stories mm-hmm. of how they came. But what is interesting is they were, uh, you know, they came in search. They, they, they were given this impression that the streets were paved with gold, that it would be wonderful mm-hmm. to come here to Africa. But when they came, they, after three months of being packed like sardines mm. in, in these ships, they came a very disillusioned people here to Africa. And I remember my grandmother crying often saying to my grandfather at that time, you brought me here, I don't have relatives, I don't know anyone, mm. um, I'm lonely, I'm scared, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. But... Um, other people have lots of other stories to tell, 
But there, immediately after that, there was a barrage of 140 laws that were enacted against them, mm-hmm. preventing them to, from moving from province to province and all sorts of things like that. Is that why the concentration then is in, is in Natal? Mainly? In Natal, they came to work in the sugar industry, that's right. As slaves. As literally, yeah, indentured, indentured. Mm-hmm. I have some wonderful pictures in the book I, I'd like you to see at some point, but if you looked at the women then and the children working in the sugar industry, you'd never believe that that's how we began, you know, in sex. Um, some of the, the the clothing that they wore were actually, you know, rice sacks and uh, mini meal sacks. Yes, yes. And things like that, yeah, yeah. You know, um, mm-hmm. as far as we understand and we've been made to understand over yeah. the years is that Indian women have, have always been relegated to the kitchen, the domesticated, and, and then one didn't expect them to excel or succeed in any other career or profession. Right. Um, what right. changed that? Well, it was interesting that they came, um, they came with the knowledge of their own language. Mm-hmm. You see, that was interesting. Um, so even though they came without a formal English education, mm-hmm. they, they had their own ethnic uh, language and culture and religion mm-hmm. to fall back on. Uh, and so a lot of the songs and so forth that they sang at the time was was um, was about uh, the, the Ramayana stories of um, of um, the, the, the religious books and so forth. Mm. But the formal education <clears throat> only started after the the passenger traders came along and began to establish schools. Um, and, and then later on, the government came up with Indian-aided schools. So the Indian community set up their own schools, and then the government came on a pound-to-pound basis mm-hmm. to, to assist in what they call government-aided schools. But at that point, they influenced the educational curriculum to the detriment of, of the people. Um, so to answer your question, um, how do they... How do they Transform from from being uneducated domestic uh, women to women on the bench today. The first Indian woman pilot. You know, one can go on. Yes. How has this happened? And I think you know it's interesting when Gandhi was here, the women marched. They marched in the passive resistance movement. Mm-hmm. to fight against the government. Mm. And so they came out in the hundreds uh, uh, to do that. And a 16-year-old girl by the name of Velima, and she died in prison. Oh you know. um, and when Gandhi asked her in prison whether she would want to die again, and she said, who wouldn't want to die for one's country? Um, because they were so passionate about fighting for rights. And one country was South Africa. Was it obviously South Africa? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Because he says here, Felema, you do not repent for having gone to jail, I asked. Repent? I am even now ready to go to jail again if I'm arrested, she said. But what if this results in your death, I pursued? I do not mind it. Who would not want to die for one's motherland, was her reply. Hmm. 
And um, so, you know, so they, so they had the fervor that, and I think they brought that fervor from India against the British. And so they continued that battle here in Natal. I would have expected that men yes. would be more participative in, 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 in the political uh, uh, yes. agenda of the day yes. as opposed to women. So I'm quite surprised that even a 16-year-old, like yes. the one you describe, um, yes. could participate. Yes, they, they did. Actually, it was very much a community um, mm. struggle mm. in the sense that the women went out at the behest of Mahatma Gandhi <clears throat> and then marched across defying the, the laws that said they can't move from one province to another. Mm. And then they stirred up. <clears throat> Sorry, I have a frog in my throat. No problem, no problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they stirred up the men who were working in, in the in the coal mines and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the men and women marched together. So at different historical periods, uh, women, you know, exhorted the men, women went uh, to prison, and then men joined them. And then, of course, leaders like Monty Naika, uh, Gunam, Dr. Gunam, Fatima Mir, mm-hmm. all of them came to the fore um, a little later. That seemed to be very well documented, though, the, the role of yeah. the women uh, over, over the years, especially politically. Yeah. Uh, but there have been other successes in other areas, for instance, like in, in arts and culture, the, you know, the, 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 yeah. they've been in, in medicine. Can you tell us a bit about those developments? Yes, yes. Well, what I found uh, interesting is that when I traced the beginning of of Indian women's participation in South Africa, um, it was a struggle. It was hard. It was they were poor, they were impoverished, and so forth. But um, an, another factor was that they were not relegating the education. All through, you know, throughout uh, throughout the period here, there was this emphasis on education. Mm. And Dr. Gunam would go out to families and say to the to the to the families, "You have to let your daughters get educated." Mm. So that was one weapon that they used, um, you know, throughout their stay here. Mm. But I noticed that for large periods of of our history in this country. Women were largely invisible. You know, they would come out to do the passive resistance, but they would go back into domesticity again. Um, and and then also, they were as the years went on, they had qualifications, but they were occupationally stagnant group mm. under apartheid, particularly. We couldn't find jobs. They weren't jobs. And so, although higher education records like paint a different picture. Their qualifications were, didn't translate into job opportunities or any positions of high status. But what is interesting is after the ANC government came into, uh, into power, mm-hmm. under the new democracy, there was a renaissance of Indian women um, going into every particular direction, like medicine and law and um, um, uh, medicine, law, engineering, uh, sports, you know, um, and 
um, HIV AIDS and, and so forth, mm-hmm. but making really international outreach. Um, Navi Pillay, for example, is our United Nations High Commissioner, you know, mm-hmm. um, the first South African woman. And, uh, then but hadn't we had, we had a, an Indian uh, ambassador in Italy? Yes. Many yes, years ago? Yes, and she's still alive, actually. She is. Um, her name is, uh, she, she's Kosha Jinwala. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and she's a sister of, um, of, yeah, yeah, the, um, of the Jinwala. Mm-hmm. Freni, yes. Now, I, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, with all the changes that have happened, it was many years ago, more than 150 years ago, that the original um, Indian group moved to South Africa. But there's still a very strong cultural and religious tie to India. Um, yes and no. Um, that was a question I asked myself because, um, uh, you know, they, uh, I, I pose that question to a lot of the women. And what I noticed is that a lot of them have, can't speak an Indian language. Uh, no, they can't actually. Mm. They may practice the religion and do the ritual and so forth, but they can't. They can't speak an, in, an, an Indian language properly. Mm. They can't speak uh, uh, Zulu, uh, an African language either. They can. Some of them growing up in the Transvaal can speak Afrikaans, mm. but in in Natal, their first language is really. English. English. We went to vernacular schools. I remember I, I was sent after after school to a vernacular school. We had to learn Tamil, um, which I still can't speak very well. Mm-hmm. But you know that's not unusual because migrant groups all over the world, like the Greeks and the Italians and so forth, they actually can't speak Italian properly, mm-hmm. or you know, because they take on the culture of of the uh, resident group of um, you know, country. Mm-hmm. That I noticed, and then another thing is they all said, I said, "Mm, how do you define yourself? Mm -hmm. Some people didn't want to be in the book, like Phyllis Naidu. She said, I'm not an Indian, I'm an African. So I said, okay. Very strong view. Yeah, very strong. (laughs) (laughs) So then then other women said the same thing. They they don't want, you know, to be an ethnic glorification. Mm. And I'm saying no, it's not an ethnic glorification. In fact, you can say how you how you identify, how you see yourself um, as a South African of Indian origin, um, because in actual fact, others see you in that way. You may not even see and, yourself. And isn't there a new classification of, of of Indians to be regarded as black now? Well, you know, in the in the uh, black consciousness movement time, like when Biko was, uh, was around and so forth, we all said we are we are black, we're not Indian or whatever, because the the, the designation of non-European meant that we had to break ourselves up into Indian, coloured, and black. Yes, yes. And we said no politically. We, you know, we all can't go to the beaches. We all can't do this. We are all black, mm-hmm. and and so that designation was there as a political strategy. Okay. But now things have changed because you know we still have on the statute books. People are still saying, all the records are saying in the universities and everywhere, what are you? 
you you have to you have to um, uh, um, claim that you're either an Indian, a coloured, or this or that for the AA, you know, um, affirmative action um, uh, ratios and so forth. So the designation of race is still very very uh, active in our in our constitution today. Dr. Raja, please stay on the line for us. We're taking a little break, and we'll be back to you in a minute. SAFM and the Mail and Guardian present the fourth Mail and Guardian Literary Festival from the 30th of August to the 1st of September at the Market Theatre. Join me, Nancy Richards, broadcasting live from the festival. Tickets for the Mail and Guardian Literary Festival cost 50 rand per session. To book, go to www.mg.co.za or contact Tamarin on 011-250-7300. SAFM, let's have the conversation in partnership with the Mail and Guardian, Africa's best read. Otherwise, on SAFM. Talking to Dr. Devi Rajab, we're talking about uh, South Africans of uh, South African women of Indian origin and getting a bit of a background. And she's written that book. Um, who should be reading this, Dr. Rajab? Well, I think every South African should be reading it because it's actually a part of our history. And, um, you know, Rampela Mampela has written the forward for me Mm -hmm. in the book. Mm -hmm. And she is actually saying that, you know, history largely reflects the narratives of victors, but it doesn't talk about the um, so-called critical voices of of people who have been excluded. Mm -hmm. And therefore, in a true democracy, it's, it's a very critical gap that we need to cover. So the, the, the answer to your question is, is that I think everyone should read because it is a part of our history. We're all a part of South Africa. And I think the strength of this book is really telling the stories of ourselves, our personal profiles of Indian women of South African origin. So it is our history. I'm just wondering, by highlighting uh, women as Indian women, of South Africa, you know, we've had issues in, in KwaZulu-Natal, especially with Indian people against yeah. the Zulu people, and does this not perpetuate the separation or the looking at the next person as the other, as opposed to one of, one of us? Um, not at all. In fact, I think it enhances it. I think knowing about ourselves, where we came, how we arrived, what we've done, uh, our, our history is so crucial to understanding who we are. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, you know, the people I've spoken to have just, or the schools that I've addressed and so forth, they're just like it opens up a whole new realm. So they don't look at you, um, uh, uh, they look at you beyond the stereotype, mm-hmm. um, you see. And um, I think it enhances our understanding. It is, it is really uh, contributing to a historical richness. Um, I, you know. I, I hear you. But how important is it, though, to yeah. still keep practicing, you know, the, the, yeah. the Indian culture, I love your food, by the way. I think it's absolutely <laughs> amazing. I've got a huge recipe yeah. book of, of Indian curries. It's your food, too. <laughs> I know. I'll I know. I'll tell you why it's your food, too. It's our food. It's because this is what makes South Africa. Yes. This is precisely, you know, the bultong, the curry, the, yes. all of that. This is what makes South Africa. And I, I saw this beautiful little girl, um, Zulu girl, doing Bharatanatyam. Uh, 
which is a classical Indian form of dance. Oh, wow. And, and it was mind-boggling to see how children can learn. I mean, when you open my wardrobe, I have uh, Japanese kimono, mm. I have, um, you mm. know, dashikis, I have an Indian outfit. I, I think this is what makes us so rich and, and exciting, you mm. know, mm. As, as people. To be able to do that, and I was a little girl, I learned ballet and I learned other things as well, music and so forth. And I think this this is what I would inculcate in the education of children that they, you know, it's a global world now. Mm-hmm. Uh, wherever you go, um, things are opening, boundaries are, are merging, and 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 that's why I think it's so important to know about our, our, where we came from. Although I believe you have a lesson to teach us as a people of Indian origin mm-hmm. in the sense that with, with our advancement, when I say ours, I speak about a lot of South Africans who are advancing and, and getting educated but are losing a lot of who they are, right. um, their traditions, a lot of their culture. And you've held on to that. How do you marry the two? Well, I think it's very easy. I think it's very easy because uh, if you're a global citizen um, and you know where your roots are, you can actually you can actually um, you know flow into a beautiful uh, tree. But you you know there's no tree without roots, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and every tree blossoms. And so if I had to take that analogy, I would say that I think if you didn't, if you negated where you came from, you would be the loser for that. In fact, I remember when I was growing up at the depth of apartheid, it was that cultural narcissism that helped me to believe that I was okay, that I wasn't just a little black girl, you know, uh, that that the Nats defined, but that I'd come from somewhere and that I'd had a culture and I'd had music and I had dance and I had literature. You know, what you're saying is so important because then other people define you when you don't know who you are. Yeah, absolutely, precisely, you know. Um, like some of my friends have adopted uh, black children, perhaps this is going off the tangent, but it isn't really. It's mm. about identity. Yes. And I said to them, does your child speak Zulu? And they said to me, does your child speak Zulu? So I said, listen, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the identity of this child. This child is coming from somewhere. Mm-hmm. You've adopted this child. But it's very crucial for the child also to have some roots, you know, without it pulling you down, but also to have some kind of acknowledgement of who they are. Of course, it's by choice, but um, but you can't negate uh, and, and create a false sense of identity. How would they do that, though? Because that would be difficult. They don't know the child's roots anyway. Yeah. So how would they then uh, be able to inform because, the child? Or, or Yeah, because we're living in a country where we should be learning all of that. Mm. We have access to it, mm. you know. Mm. Um, and, and in my particular family, I have... Um, People of all, you know, religious groups, Muslim and Hindu and Jewish and Christian, and the grandchildren are learning uh, to speak in, uh, you know, uh, in um, African language, uh, 
uh, as well as some Jewish, um, you know. This is all in one family? Yeah, 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 yeah. All in one family. <laughs> I'd love but to be beautifully rich. And it's so exciting that a little kid can say three prayers in three different languages, all in one. <laughs> and it's easiest to teach children at, at that little age, tender age, because as we get older, then it gets more difficult to to adapt yeah. and, and, and practice. And, of course, you need to be yeah. using whatever you're learning daily. Absolutely, but it's also it's about expanding your mind. Mm. It's about opening yourself to different uh, um, sort of cultures. If you don't, if you have too close the mind, then you actually can't see. You can't you can't transcend yourself. So that's why I think you know it's about it, it's it's like walking on a tightrope. If you have too many roots, uh, too much roots, you know, you know that lovely, um, what is it, uh, that's saying, if you have too much roots, you can't grow. If you have too much wings, you can't fly, you know, or then you fly without roots and so whatever. So la- la- life is about roots and wings. That's Dr. Raja, please stay on the line for me. Hold that thought, because now we're taking news headlines with Utsilia Sako. Otherwise, on SAFM. Cecilia, I, I interrupted there, Dr. Rajab. You were saying too many wings, you can't fly. Um, I, yeah, I was saying that there's a saying that says love is an offering of roots and wings. Mm. And if there's too, many, too much roots, then you actually get stuck. Right, uh-huh. and if there's too much wings, then you actually, you, you know, you fly, but you you don't know what the way your source lies. So it is about marrying the two, the roots and the wings. So the ability to know where you came from, but also the ability to fly beyond it, um, you know, and to see commonality mm-hmm. in all of life's offerings, you know. Yeah. I guess I was going to ask you what, what we can learn from reading this book, uh, as, just as human beings and as individuals. You know, there seems to be so much power. There seems to be so much wisdom in, 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 in some of the things you've told us about today that I, I'm, I'm hoping that it can encourage all of us, in fact, to, to kind of find ourselves in the same way you found yourself. Well, that's very kind of you, but I, I would say that what you're doing right now is you're giving an opportunity uh, for us to hear a different voice, mm. and, and, and that's what I think South Africans, that's where our richness lies, mm. really, um, because it's a strange thing. I, I, I lived in America for many years, about four years, but... You know, if I would hear um, an African language like Zulu or something spoken, uh, or, or I'd hear Kisusikilele uh, being sung, then, then, you know, the hairs would stand up on your, on your arms and sort of, and it's really saying you, you viscerally linked with this country of your birth. Mm-hmm. And and yet, uh, I I would hear a Subalakshmi, which is a beautiful woman's voice, um, sung in the South, and I could connect with that as well. Mm-hmm. So it's really about my richness of being born in South Africa. And, and my book is saying, um, what is saying, conceived in India and made in South Africa. Oh, perfect. Perfect. When is yeah. the book in the stores? Yes, of course. Um, I think uh, 
exclusives would have then. But if you're having difficulty, um, I will send you a copy. I can't wait because, you know, I just saw an excerpt on, on, online, but I, yeah. I, I think it's so beautiful to read, written. But I love the photographs. Oh, Tell wonderful. us a bit about the photographer. The photographer is Ranjit Kali, who is an award-winning photographer, mm-hmm. and he's uh, well into his 80s. Um, and he really inspired me because he had these wonderful pictures um, of women. And the one that caught my eye was the one of uh, um, Chief Lutuli's uh, wife and and Christopher. Um, and the, the two, the, both of them, were their bodies were entwined into each other. Mm. With their age, it's just mag- magnificent pictures he, he 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 did. So he had them all over my uh, um, dining room table, mm-hmm. and I said, "I think we need to do something about this." <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm pleased to say he got an honorary doctorate for his work as a, as a veteran photographer. And um, yeah, and so I was very happy to have worked with him. Congratulations to him. And well yes. done with the book, and thank you so much for your time. Not at all, and I must thank you very much indeed for giving me this opportunity to share it with so many of your listeners. Thank you so much. You thank take you. Care. That was, uh, oh gosh, I love that conversation. Dr. Devi Rajab, and the book is called Women South Africans of Indian Origin. When we come back... Uh, I'll speak to Abstra Pancho. She's the 2008 world champion for women's blackball pool. Don't leave them. Abstra Pancho is on the line. Hello, Abstra. Hi, Shadow. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And you? I, I'm, I'm so glad that you could join us. Now, I, I didn't know that women like you play pool because there are misconceptions about pool. You need to be in a bar. You need to be drinking very hard to play pool. For sure. There's been a previous stigma attached to the game being a typical pub sport. Mm-hmm. And that was my job like, was just over a decade ago to change that perception. How did you start playing? I 
Then I'll study my chemical engineering degree, mm-hmm. and on campus, hanging out in the canteen during your break, <laughs> a colleague of mine, um, Sanjay Devi Prasad, actually saw the way I used to pot against the guys with the bar cue. And Potting he, means, uh, you, you must explain this. Cause playing I don't, I don't the game <laughs> on the pool table, yes. When you when you dunk the ball, is that, is that potting? That's a pot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but and then you went on to become a champion in two thousand and eight, and you've competed in so many other competitions. Tell us yes. about that. Um, in fact, it was quite a steep climb because in my first year I had provincial colours, my second year I made number one in South Africa, and in two thousand and two I actually made number one in the world for the first time. We it was something taboo, and especially for an Indian female, mm-hmm. being in those environments. Because, I mean, we all know that Indian girls, as mentioned previously, um, <laughs> we've groomed from a young age. I was 12 years old when you, know, you taught how to cook and do everything and become the best housewife ever. Exactly. But um, when we are sort of, we call it unleashed, when you get to campus <laughs> and you get to, you get to meet the real world, it changes your perspective about things. And my message to a lot of parents out there is empower your daughters at a young age. Didn't you have important. problems with your family when you started playing? Didn't I mean, I know you were studying at the same time, which should have kept them happy. But were they not worried about your playing pool? In fact, I would not have been successful had it not been for my parents' open-mindedness and support. I actually took them, because of my relationship with my parents, I took them to my league games Mm -hmm. when I joined the league, and they saw exactly what it was about, and obviously it maintained its respect from the word go. Mm -hmm. And also, it doesn't matter where a woman is, no matter what you do, it is how you carry yourself and the respect that you command and demand that actually makes you who you are. Very true. It's up to the woman and the individual to maintain that, and sustain that throughout their careers, throughout their lives. And I think it, I am inspired by the strong women that have actually, you know, led us into our paths of success. Yes, women that came before you. Absolutely. And from my side, it was breaking through a whole host of barriers because apart from just being an Indian female in the community, it was taboo across South Africa mm-hmm. for women to be acknowledged as good players in that particular code of sport. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure at the time, over a decade ago, it was probably taboo in most sports for women to be participating. It was always taken with a pinch of salt, mm-hmm. especially a game like pool being dominated by males, mm-hmm. a predominantly male environment. And... You know, to break those barriers, I had a vision and a dream to be able to eventually get pool tables into schools for little kids, whereby the sport can get acknowledgement and recognition for being a formal game itself and not just a pub sport, like you say. Mm. Because there's so much room for, like, an opportunity for job creation, opportunities to get the pool tables out of the shop just outside the school, Mm. get the kids inside the schools learn the sport, learn the focus and the skill, as well as the science behind playing the game and understanding the angles which could assist in maths and physics and all the other subjects in the classroom. I was going to say, what does it teach you, the sport? And I, I can understand it teaches you some, some strategic thinking, uh, but what else does it teach you? In, in terms of my biggest uh, lessons from the sport, it's taught me how to focus. Mm. It is my time of meditation, 
and to drain your mind of all other things in life and focus on nothing else but the shot that you're playing on. That is a form of meditation, in my opinion, where by allowing yourself to focus on a pool table Mm -hmm. in order to achieve and attain what you're targeting or your goals, you're able to learn the art of focusing in everything and every task that you actually take on. Mm. And that's the lesson in life that I've adopted and used in every other facet. So how's your program going? Are you you working on a program of getting it into schools? Uh, There's an entire association. In 2005, I was the vice president of the national body, Mm -hmm. and that is when we had done an application to SASCOP, that's the government uh, sporting body, Mm -hmm. um, and also the IOC, which is the International Olympic Committee, Mm -hmm. whereby being properly affiliated allowed the sport to be recognized as an official sport, Mm -hmm. thereby qualifying for specific funding. And thereafter, we obviously have been receiving uh, you know, minor sponsors and sponsorships to go uh, across to other countries and get official South African project colors mm. and get recognition and also put South Africa on the global map. On the global map. Is it an expensive sport? To travel overseas, yes, it would be, like any other traveling for any sport. Uh, no, but, but I, mean, I mean just the playing of the game and the, the, the tools that you use, the table and the... You call them cues. Are they cues? That is correct. Yes, and the cues and, 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 and the little round things that you hit around. Yes. Is that expensive to set up? Um, generally, it, it is somewhat. Relative to the income and the earners, average earners in South Africa, it is expensive. Mm-hmm. However, that is why we're looking to get the funding to try and roll out the equipment mm-hmm. into you know, the mass participation and to get into schools, to get it to the greater public so that there is the option of picking up the best talent at an early age. Mm. We want to groom all the the prodigies and allow for South Africa to showcase its true talent at the highest levels and bring out those, you know, uh, unsung heroes and Mm. being a Cinderella sport Mm. to bring it to the forefront. But obviously we've got to start at the youngest of ages. And I wish I had those opportunities back in the day to be able to identify that, you know, I could actually play the game. Yeah. Are there many clubs? Are there many clubs that are around the country that people can join, young people, just while we're waiting for the school program to happen? Yes, absolutely. There are leagues across the board. There's different structures that you can join up to either social league or even, um, you know, subsidize in the main league itself, depending on the requirements. But all it is is about playing the game. Also, it takes the focus away from... Uh, like you're not allowed to actually consume alcohol or be smoking or anything mm. when you're participating in the league. Also, the great thing about the sport is that you we are signed up with, you know, your drug-free sports, etc. Mm. And as such, if you're part of the association, you're not allowed to, uh, you know, be found guilty of any substance abuse. Mm. Mm. So that also affords the community an opportunity to control from a young age that type of, uh, you know, malpractice of thoughts. And um, I think it's important for the youth today to have some direction. And when you give them something to focus on, you'll find a lot of kids have actually dropped their bad habits mm. and turned mm. out to be champions in South Africa. And that is what's great about the game. Tell me, you, you went to, you were part of the Ladies World Championships in 2010? Uh, yes. How mm. did we do? The Women's World Champ, we, South Africa, Team South Africa actually won the Women's World 
between 2008 and 2010 championships. And are you planning on competing elsewhere now? Um, there are As an individual? In, there are several codes in Q-Sports, and I have conquered, if you want to call it, the black <laughs> ball, eight ball, nine ball, and ten ball South African champion titles. And my eyes are set on snooker this year. And oh. next weekend, I I hope to participate in the national event that's taking place in Durban. Oh, and, okay. Uh, well, I look forward to a different code because the table is four times the size. And I think it's brilliant for women to actually now compete on a different platform again, opening doors for them to have an alternate option, possibly for an income, hopefully, one day. Is it easy to to, to play um, uh pool and then graduate to snooker, aren't there technical differences? The games are different, uh, but the technique and the cue action is very similar. Okay. okay. It's similar to playing, if you can play a test cricket or a one day or a, you know, a 2020, mm-hmm. uh, basically the skill would be required, it's just the temperament and uh, a few rule tweaks, but the, the fundamental principle of how you play is applicable, and if you don't try and you don't start, you will never know. And if you do, if you don't, if you have that focus, I'm sure it helps Absolutely. in in any game. Yes. Now, how do you juggle your work as as a, a chemical engineer? You said yes. And um, and and playing pool. I actually don't have much time of late to be able to participate in uh, you know the routine leagues, etc. And I've been playing in a single league to try and accommodate just being part of the association, um, because my work commitments have expanded uh, almost nationally, at, uh, you know, through KZN Cape Town and a bit of Joburg. Mm. Uh, but I think basically applying the principles at any tournament that I attend, mm. I have a set routine and, like I mentioned, the ability to focus on what I'm doing 100%. That is what uh, is actually the difference in being successful at what you do. At so anything it, you it, attempt, yeah. It's as good as riding a bicycle. Even though you may not forget how to ride a bicycle, you've got to focus and make sure that your, you know, your pre-shot routines and the, the actual practice that you do cause is 100%, because only perfect practice makes perfect. Actually, do you have a family? Do you have children? Or yes. are you married? Uh, my son is six and a half years old, and he's... <laughs> the boss in my life, <laughs> and I'm very proud of my son, Neil. Um, he's basically my pride and joy. My family is very supportive of everything, as I mentioned, and I am very grateful to them because they say we can only stand with our head in the clouds if we stand on the shoulders of giants. Oh. And I really am grateful to them for having put me where I am and supported me every step of the way. When so are I'm you proud to be uh, with my family. When are you going to introduce him to the sport? No, no, uh, my son has his own pool table. (laughs) And I can assure you he's got his own cue and he loves the game. It's just, you know, uh, the height that's a bit of a problem, but he loves his game and he enjoys it. He looks forward to it. He earns his own two rand to play the game every time. So he's got his own little structured uh, way forward. But uh, my message basically to everybody out there is if you don't, go out and explore and try different things in life. Who knows? We may be lo- losing out on an opportunity mm. to earn a salary of something that we absolutely love doing and enjoy doing. What a pleasure to earn a salary of 
the you know work that you love. Mm. Now tell me, um, if somebody's listening and is interested in participating and uh, wants to join the league, where does one find more information? Uh, we have uh, a few websites. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've got my own website, but uh, for the association, uh, we do have a Q Sport Fever. That's a website that hosts most of the Q Sport uh, Fever. Yes. Mm-hmm. And basically, that allows for uh, knowledge in terms of um, the sport, the players, the profiles. Uh, in fact, you can click on anybody's name, you'll pick up the sports person's mm-hmm. history their achievements and, you know, up-and-coming tournaments and events. And what's brilliant about it is that um, you're obviously getting recognition internationally. Mm-hmm. And there was also um, a, 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 sorry, a website, www.123champs.com. And I was surprised to see that they've got every single world champion in all official world championships that's listed on that. Fantastic. That's 123champs. And there's uh, Michael Schumacher and the rest of the crew, and there's my name up there. So oh, well proud. done, well done. Well, congratulations, Abstra. Thank you. And thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Good luck with future uh, tournaments, eh? Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Abstra Pancho, she is once upon, oh, no, more than once a world champ, uh, but she seems to be doing very well, especially in South Africa, with regards to pool. It is now time for our children's story, and today the story is of the ugly duckling. <laughs>